Good morning, Pacific Hope Church family. You may be seated. This morning we're continuing our study, the seventh week, the minor prophet Malachi. As we move through this, we are reminded that this is a holy God addressing his covenant people. And as we we saw last week, we see that God in his grace points ultimately to the finished work of Jesus Christ and that mountain of mercy, the cross perched atop it, offering us forgiveness of our sins and a right relationship with him. We've also seen that throughout this book, God will faithfully lead his people partway up the mountain of justice, the mountain of judgment, that they might rightly worship him and flee to his mercy. As we unpack the text this morning, we'll again be reminded that our God is unchanging and offers us mercy. Before we read this text this morning, I want to put out a bit of a reminder of what we've seen here. We've seen that God describes himself as one who is rightly owed reverence, rightly owned, owed fear. He says to his people, if I am master, where is my fear? And his servant people, in the allegation that we'll see today, set their hearts to grumble against their master. Say, everybody around us is doing better than we are. Everyone around us is is better off than we are. And they complain against their gracious and merciful master. It's with this in view that we'll read this morning's text and ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate this for us. Would you please stand out of reverence for God's word? We'll be reading this morning from verse 6 through verse 15 of Malachi chapter 3. This is God's holy word. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob Gob? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, have we robbed you? How have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring in the full tithe into the storehouse, so there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruit of your soils and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's ask the Lord to use his word to direct our hearts to him this morning. Let's pray. 
Father in heaven, would you quiet our hearts this morning that we would hear from your word, that your Holy Spirit would minister to us, and that you would be in full view, that we might worship you as we ought. Lord God, would this word do its work in our lives and, and make us a people who run to your mercy, for you are a God who abundantly pardons. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning's message is one a few of you who have done your homework have commented and said, well, this is one every preacher dreads, right? Talking about tithing and, and giving. But I'll tell you that we're preaching this text because it comes after verse 5 and before verse 16. We preach expositionally. We go through God's word and we allow it to speak to us. Furthermore, I want to tell you that this text like every other text in Scripture, is ultimately not about what we are to do and what we are not to do, but it is about our holy God. So that's where we must begin. As we move through this text today, I'm going to give you three things that we're going to see together, and I'll start with the letter R just to make it easy. And the first thing that we're going to do together is we're going to reflect. We're going to reflect first and foremost on who our God is and who we are as his people. That's the first R, reflect. The second one is return. Throughout Scripture, when we find the word return, we, we know that its synonym is repent. That's our second R. And the third is to re-gift. That is, giving back to God what he has already given to us. Now, as you move through those three things, you might think that the main point is getting to the giving part, and it's not. It's the first point, the reflect on who God is and what he's done for us. And so rightfully, that's where God begins as he lays out this response to his people. His people, as we see in verse 13, have spoken hard against God. They've criticized their master. They've criticized their holy, faithful God. And so God's rebuttal begins in verse 6. We could just preach this verse this week, and that'd probably be plenty for us. Look at what it says together. God says, for I, the Lord, do not change. I, the Lord, do not change. God is declaring to his people an attribute of his nature. That is what we know as immutability. He doesn't change. The same yesterday, today, and forever. That's what God declares about himself. And that's, that's pretty modest, right? For God to be under the allegations of his people, and to come back with one attribute to describe himself seems pretty modest. I don't change. And he goes on to say, I don't change, and therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Let's unpack this for just a minute as we review what we've learned about the book of Malachi. How did it begin? It began with, you're asking me how I love you? Jacob, I have loved you. Esau, I have hated. So if we look at the phrase that God is using here, he says, oh, children of Jacob, that's going to take them back immediately to how he began affirming his love for them. And that is, they didn't get picked because they were remarkably qualified. Anything but, they were chosen by God and his sovereignty From within the womb, Jacob, the deceiver, unworthy, but yet God chose him. 
As we look at the statement, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. What is in this statement warrants a lifetime of reflection. This week, some of you may have noticed that as Anne sent out our weekly email, there was homework. I will not ask you to raise your hands if you've done this homework, but if you have done this homework, I can assure you that you were blessed by these incredible texts. For those of you who didn't do the homework, I'll help you out a little bit. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah, around 100 years before God used his messenger Malachi, was instrumental in bringing about reforms in the, in the hearts and the minds of the exiles who came back from Babylon. As we looked at the, the book of Haggai, the Lord's temple was in ruins. The Lord's covenant people were given the charge to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. And in the midst of doing that, Nehemiah calls them all together for a time of collective self-indictment. This is reflection, reflection on who they were and also on who God is. I draw your attention to verse 16 of Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah and all the people are saying, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you, O oh God, are ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Now let's stay here for just a minute. God says in Malachi 3 verse 6, I therefore do not change. But God's own people profess with their lips a number of other ways that God could rightly be described. I encourage you to write these down. Let's, let's look at that again together in verse 17 of Nehemiah 9. But you are a God ready to forgive. Gracious. Merciful. Slow to anger. And abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. This is the nature of God. He begins his opening argument to his people by saying, I don't change. This is how I've always been. And God's people acknowledge that. But oh, we're quick to forget, are we not? Verse 28 of Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah goes through it, and he recounts how they've complained against God and how they've fallen back into sin and, and how they've been punished and how they've been restored. They've been brought back out of Babylon. And look in verse 28. It says, But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And if they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Verse 30, many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets. 
yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. And look at verse 32. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us. He's righteous. He is merciful. If as you're note-taking, you write down that, that God is unchanging, he is immutable. That's what he declares. But his people have said that he's ready to forgive, that he's gracious, that he's merciful, that he's slow to anger, that he's abounding in love, that he did not forsake them. Nehemiah says, in, their, in his great mercy, he didn't make an end of his people. That's why they weren't consumed. God is great and mighty and awesome, and he keeps covenant with steadfast love. With this God in view, we, we reflect on that. And at the same time, it forces us to look at our own hearts and to look at our own situations. If you were to look at that text again, you see the word many times, and for many years he bore with them. It's so easy to come at a text like this and think the Israelites were pretty dense. The Israelites sure didn't understand this. They just got done getting together, the whole people of God, and singing God's praises, and they're sinning again. Now, if you need my help to connect that to your own life, I'll pray for you again, right? This is such a clear indictment of us, and that's why God begins his statement saying, therefore, I am the Lord and I don't change, and because of that, you are not consumed, it's beginning with that, that we understand how it is that God wants to speak to us as his people. Let's go back to Malachi chapter 3. If you didn't do that homework, Nehemiah chapter 9 and Nehemiah chapter 10, it's not too late. May you be blessed by it through his holy word. Verse 7 of Malachi chapter 3, he says, From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, How shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. Okay, now I want to call out something that's remarkable about what's happening here. See, this first R that we're supposed to do together is reflect on who God is on his holiness, his mercy, his character. And then to reflect on the reality of, of who we are and how desperately in need of him we are. What does that produce in our lives? That ought to provoke a response of worship. Look at me, look with me if you would at this question in verse 8. Verse 8 begins with, Will man rob God? Well, man robbed God, and it seems as though God is going straight to the issue of the people of Israel not giving of their financial resources. But there's much more to it in what's being said here. John Calvin's commentary points out that the, the word that's used for God in this particular sentence, this particular question, is different from what we find in most of the rest of the book of Malachi. Most of the time, we found Yahweh, God's covenant name. 
But in this particular section, what we see is that the word is Elohim, a Hebrew word that's a little bit enigmatic, but it refers to God in his plural form, the plural singularity of a triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But Calvin points out that rightly, this is probably God's messenger doing a a very indicting play on words. If we were to translate this the way Calvin describes it, it says, will a man rob his gods? Right? Plural. Will a man rob his gods? And as I said, the context here is that God's people are looking all around them. All of the other people that have come back out of Babylonian captivity, and it seems like they're doing better off than they are. They're looking at the Joneses and how they're doing financially. And they're looking and they're saying, you know what? This is kind of a a hard time for us. Things aren't quite as abundant as we thought we'd be. We heard our grandparents telling us about Jerusalem and how great it was going to be, and it's not really that great. This whole thing is just a, a bit disappointing to us. And so they speak harshly against God. And so God asks this question, will a man rob his gods? God is making an inadvertent comparison of his people with all the people around them. The pagans gave to their gods. The pagans would use of their financial resources to do giving. Now, if we understand what Jesus tells us about the human heart, Jesus tells us where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, our our giving follows our worship. Anybody else get those end-of-the-year bank statements with a neat little pie graph that tell you where all your money went? Take a look at one of those. It might tell you a few things about your prioritization. 46% on travel. 25% on golf outings, right? You go through that, and we understand that as a matter of the heart, our giving follows our worship. And that's what is being said in this statement. Will man rob his gods? But then God turns it around with a personal pronoun and says, yet you are robbing me. If I follow your worship, it doesn't seem like I am the object of your affections. The previous generation had given and had rebuilt the temple. They've got their temple back and now they're kind of, they're no longer enamored with it anymore. It's not quite so novel and now going to the temple isn't a thing of wanting to give with generosity. It's kind of a drag. As we've gone through, we saw the indictments about their lame offerings, right? They bring one sheep with a leg that's a little shorter and a blind goat and all of these things that God says, why are you doing this? Yet you are robbing me. God goes on to say, but you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and in your contributions. Verse 9, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Now, there's a few things we need to understand here about what's being said. First of all, God is saying that they're, they're robbing the Lord by being disobedient. The tithes and the contributions throughout the law, there were specific instructions about God's people giving. Giving of their first fruits, giving of their financial resources, giving in obedience to the Lord. And we'll unpack that in just a minute. But first, I I want us to understand 
really poignantly what's said in verse 9. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. We've established that Malachi has in view many times the priesthood, a, a subset of the people. But this portion of text makes it very clear that he's dealing with everyone, all of the people, the children of Jacob are under indictment. This includes the priests. In fact, in the law, it's clear that even the priests were to give a tithe, a tithe of the tithes. This is a blanket statement for all of the people. And because they have not done this, they are all under a curse. Now, cursing and blessing. These are unusual terms for us, but we need to understand that the cursing and the blessing is all a litmus for how our relationship is with God, for how our worship is with God. His intent is to, to show blessing in favor of his people so that it would point back to the health of their relationship with God. But we as people so quickly look to the blessing, look to the, the gift that we forget the giver. We forget from whom all of these gifts come and what the purpose is of those gifts. And as a result, God in his divine love may choose to take those blessings away and replace them with a cursing. And all of that is to draw us back into communion with him. As we look at verse 10, it says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you blessing until there is no more need. I don't know if any of you get year-end letters from various ministries, but this is a, a favorite to, to twist and to manipulate to bring about a financial giving. But what's happening here is, is we're misunderstanding what God is telling us about him opening up the storehouses of heaven. From the garden, God's, God's interest is having a right relationship with us. God's interest is having us in communion with him so that we would know him in an intimate and saving way, so that he would be glorified. He desires to, to bless us. So when we look at verse 10, we need to understand that this is an invitation to return to a right relationship with him. And as we do so, his blessing will be given. It is not a give so that you get a blessing. It is a return in order that we might have a right relationship with God. Now, let's unpack this a little bit before we move on through the remaining verses. Actually, verse 11 will help us understand this blessing and cursing thing just a bit better. Let's look at that as well. God says in verse 11, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and the vine and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 11 talks about how God will hold back the curse and restore the blessing. He uses a particular word here. He says, I will rebuke the devourer. To understand this, I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Joel chapter 2. I'll give you a minute because it's not a very big book. Joel, 
is also a, a minor prophet. It would be a, a prophet that God used in the time after the exile. They've come back out of Babylon. And during this time, the people of Israel, for the same reasons that we're seeing in this week's text, are under a curse. And that curse takes the form of a very unusual plague. God sends a, a plague of locusts to eat all of their crops. The people are, are seeing that they are under God's divine discipline until their heart will return to him. Joel uses remarkable imagery of, of locusts eating everything. And he describes them as a, as a great army that's from the top of the mountains to the bottom of the, the valleys, and they're eating everything. In chapter 1, you see, beginning at verse 4, these, these bugs that God is using to divinely punish his children. He says, What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Their entire crops, all of their plenty, has been taken away so that their eyes would be returned to look at Christ. If you turn to verse 13 of chapter 1 in Joel, you see God speaking to his people, to his priests. He says, Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. See, he tells them to go and to, to mourn, to repent. We saw that in Nehemiah chapter 9 as well, didn't we? We saw all the people assembled. They'd ripped their clothes. They had on sackcloth. They had earth on their head. And this is supposed to be a sign of repentance. Keep your finger in Joel chapter 2. We're going to skip ahead to chapter 2. But I will tell you that Malachi 3 verse 14 says, You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? So the people have said, you know what? We've done this whole sackcloth and ash thing. We've done this whole mourning thing. And still you haven't returned our blessing. We're still in the same miserable situation we've been in. But Joel Two, verse 12, tells us something really important about turning back to the Lord. Look at Joel 2, 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and with weeping and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and will leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Contemplate those words. What does he say? He's like, I'm not interested in you tearing your garments. I'm interested in you breaking your hearts. He says, rend your hearts and not your garments. This is the kind of return that the Lord is describing. He says, return to me. Return to me with all of your heart. I'm not interested in outward signs of repentance. I'm interested in a changed heart. And you see what happens when that repentance takes place? God says, 
Who knows whether he will, turn and re- he will not turn and relent and will leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. You see, that helps us understand what God is saying. If you repent, if you will turn to me with all your heart, then see if I won't open up the storehouses of heaven and pour down blessings. But what he's interested in isn't their giving, it's the condition of their heart. Whenever you see a repentant heart, you see a reversal of the curse. If you're here this morning and you don't understand this cursing and blessing part, I want you to understand something really incredibly important. That is, God created us, put us in the Garden of Eden with him because he desired that relationship with us. Through our disobedience and through sin, we were separated from him. We were placed under a curse. We're placed under a curse until such a time that we would rend our hearts, that we would be broken in our sin and acknowledge that we need him. When that happens... The curse is broken. And the curse is only broken in one way, and that is because we understand that God in his grace sent Jesus Christ in human form, that first advent we talked about last week, born the God-man in flesh at just the right time. And he surrendered his life in obedience, gave his life on the cross, was buried in the tomb, and then took up his life again. And in doing that, he offers an opportunity for repentance. And in so, the curse is broken. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Colossians 1 verse 14 also says that Jesus, that he has canceled the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. As far as the the curse is bound, the curse can be broken by turning to Jesus Christ. The invitation this morning is to, to first reflect on who God is, then to reflect on your desperate need for him. And if you've understood who God is and your desperate need for him, the only response is to turn to him, is to repent. That's what God said through his messenger Malachi. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Returning to the book of Malachi chapter 3, we understand that those who are God's people that have understood, first of all, who he is, who they are, and their need for repentance, it will produce in us a natural response. And this is where we get to the third R this morning. This is re-gifting, giving back to God what is already rightfully His. The Lord says in verse 10 of Malachi 3, "'Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, "'that there may be food in my house.'" And thereby, put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. Now, verse 10 has a a bunch of really interesting words in here. First of all, it talks about bringing the tithe into the storehouse. This comes from the law, where during the the time where the people were in Israel, they, they carried around with them a tabernacle. 
the priests were given specific instructions to collect from the people the first of all that was had, bring it into a, a storehouse so that it could be collectively be administered for the benefit of God's people. As the, the temple was built, that same practice would continue, and, and it talks about how Solomon's temple had a storehouse that was to be filled with all that the people would bring in obedience and generosity to give to the Lord. It strikes me as very interesting, however, that the one thing that is called out in verse 10 is that bring in the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Rightly translated, that says that there will be meat in my house. Everyone likes to talk about meat, right? The, the meat of the burnt offering before the Lord. But does this God that's described as unchanging, that is great and that is awesome and that is merciful and that is slow to anger? Does he need meat? No. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Psalm chapter 50. The entire psalm speaks greatly of, of giving to the Lord. We'll just read part of it. I'll begin at verse 7 of Psalm chapter 50. God says, Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all the moves in the field are mine. Verse 12, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. What an incredible statement. God's like, I don't need that. The bringing of food to the house is, is not because God has any sort of need whatsoever. God gives this commandment. God gives the instruction to tithe ultimately for his glory, but for the good of his people. The things that are brought are meant to benefit God's covenant people. And we need to understand this as we we look at the new covenant implications of what is tithing, right? So first of all, we need to recognize that this awesome, unchanging God needs nothing from us. But we are given the option to give back to him. We are given the command, the instruction, the imperative to give back to him. So what's different? Well, the idea of tithing, first of all, was that it co corresponded for the old covenant, God's people, Israel, with harvest giving. Every time there's a harvest, you give the first fruits. Some of you might have very bountiful gardens growing in the back porch of your condo, but most of you are not farmers, and therefore your income does not come from a harvest time. When does harvest come for us? Well, it, it comes with, with the paycheck that God might graciously give us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul explains that, that this idea of giving to the, to the church, to the gospel work, is something that ought to be done weekly. Look what he says, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, beginning at verse 1. 
Now concerning the collection of the saint, for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you are to do also. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. So he's giving this instruction. He says, you know, I didn't just tell your church. I also told all these other churches in Galatia that you should give on a weekly basis as the Lord prospers to you. The other thing that we need to understand about the idea of tithing is that tithing in the, in the Old Covenant under the law was a tenth, to give a, a 10% of all that is had. The reason God prescribes it that way is so that it's even across everyone. Everyone gives. The priests give. The people give. Everyone gives according to what God has given them. If someone has a higher income, then naturally his 10% might be more than someone else's. But everyone gives. It's also incredibly important to understand, and we, you can look around and do a lot of research on what all of this means with regards to the tithe, but the, the tithe for those people in the day of Israel was a response to obedience in God's yet unfulfilled promise of Messiah. So for us as new covenant believers, all of the promises that have been made to the people of Israel have now been fulfilled for us through Christ Jesus. So if we look at this, this master that we serve, he has been faithful to us. Our response to him is not only out of obedience, but also out of gratitude. What's been paid for us? What has been given to us through Christ Jesus? As far as the, the tithing and, and God, God not needing things from us, why is it that he ordains that his people ought to give? Well, throughout the law, throughout the story of redemptive history, God set apart a portion of the, the funds to be used for a physical building, a place for God to dwell with his people, the tabernacle first, and then the, the temple. And that translates to us in a way in which we benefit from having a physical facility. There's a well-known understanding of the, the first century church that they had to meet in houses. They even had to meet during times of persecution in, in catacombs. They had no place that they could meet. But God in his grace allows some churches to have a place for a local assembly. And this is ultimately not because God needs a temple. He tells us, I'm not a God who lives in a temple built by human hands. But the, the temple, the place that we meet, is for the good of us as his people that we might worship him, that we might experience the, the ministry of presence and being together. We also understand that throughout redemptive history, God set apart a portion of that tithe to support the priests, those who administer unto him. As we move through the book of Malachi together, we've talked about the sons of Aaron, the sons of Levi, those who are the priests they were given the, the opportunity and the blessing to take from those first fruits and to live from it. Paul, throughout his epistles, lays out a new covenant, New Testament understanding of why it is that God's people ought to give for sustaining of those who are gospel workers. I'll give you a couple of examples, although scripture is full of them. One is from the pastoral letter of 1 Timothy. 
1 Timothy 5.17 says, Let the elders who rule well be considered of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And Paul says, For Scripture says, You shall not muzzle out an ox while it is treading out grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, if you would turn there, Paul lays out this same concept with greater detail as he again goes back and, and explains from the law. Beginning at verse 8 of 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul says, Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in the hope of sharing the crop. Now, if you don't understand oxen, it's okay, most of us don't. The idea is that an oxen would pull behind it a threshing wheel. It would walk in a, in a circle, and as it would pull, it would crush out the grain. Now, naturally, what would happen as the ox does that is it's going to work up a bit of an appetite. If you were to muzzle that ox so that it couldn't eat while it was working, it would have to stop the work that it was doing to care for its own physical needs. And so what Paul lays out here is an idea of what New Testament giving enables. It allows gospel workers to continue what they're doing, ministering the gospel, while being provided for. Paul goes on to say in verse 11, If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? And Paul goes on and talks about his own personal conviction. The, the giving of gospel ministry is part of what new covenant giving looks like. So we give for the purposes of having a place to meet together, and we give for the purposes of supporting gospel work. We also give for the benevolence of the saints. In the Malachi text, God describes his storehouse. The idea of the storehouse is that there would be things stored up for times of scarcity, for times of need. We know throughout Scripture, Joseph well, down in, in Egypt, set aside for Pharaoh a, a storehouse for those times where there was need. And throughout Scripture, we see the same thing happening. The church and Acts would have things in common because they would pool their resources together to meet the needs for the saints. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 says, for the ministry of this service is not only for supplying the needs of the saints, but is also for the overflowing in many thanksgiving to God. That whole section of 2 Corinthians chapter 9 talks about giving to needs of the local church and also other churches that find themselves in need. Paul talked about the, the Macedonian church giving in their great need to support another church in Jerusalem. This is part of how kingdom giving works. We give where we have the ability to do so to support the saints in other parts of the world. The fourth thing that I'm going to tell you about what we see with New Testament giving, New Covenant giving, is that it's also being given for the expansion of the gospel. 
Christ, in his great commission, explained that we're to go to the ends of the earth with the gospel. We're to start in Jerusalem and then go to Judea and then to go to Samaria and to expand the gospel. Paul himself says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we can turn there together. He explains how he was able to go and take the gospel from one place to another because of the, the giving of other churches. Beginning at verse 7 of 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says, Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? Because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge. I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrain and will refrain from burdening you in any way. Paul explains that he robbed from other churches. What an interesting word, right? We've seen the word rob just a couple of times this morning, not when you expect. But Paul says, I took from those brothers so that I could show up here and preach the gospel to you with no charge. And that's part of our commission, church. To be a church that, that not only is discipled and stretched and grown through the preaching of God's word, but that also we participate in its proclamation around the globe. Perhaps in San Diego, perhaps on the other side of the globe, but the case for giving there is clear. So much has been given to us. So those four distinctives of, of what new covenant giving should be in view, but let's go back to Malachi chapter 3. Verse 12, this is turning to God and the right relationship with him being restored. Look what happens here. Then all of the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. As we reflect on who God is and what he's done for us, as we return in our hearts to him, and as we give back to him a portion of what he has given to us, that blessing returns to us because our relationship with him is yet again made right. It's remarkable if you look at that, it says all the nations will call you blessed. Who did God give that particular promise to? We go through the, the book of Genesis, that, problem, that promise was given to Abraham. So this text begins by them being under God's heavy hand and they're referred to as the children of Jacob. The children of that deceiver, that one who was picked over Esau by God's divine love. But yet here, he begins to restore them again and he says, you know what? All the nations, they're going to call you blessed because of our relationship with him. Church, let us remember that the blessings that he has poured out to us are in order that his relationship with us might be seen, might be observed. That's his, his goal in, in giving us those blessings and that in response, we bless him. We indicate the condition of our relationship with him by giving back to him in obedience. I want to close with this passage. If you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. This verse will help us understand all three points that we've seen together this morning. It's recognizing our God 
recognizing our need for him, repenting and turning to him, and re-gifting back what he's given us. Look at this together. Hebrews 13, verse 15. Through him, then, let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. All week I've thought that passage, every blessing that you, turn, that you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. And that's what God wants to do. He wants us to understand and have that close relationship with him, to turn to him for the pardon that he freely gives. Out of that, to bless us. And as we are blessed, to bless him with the fruit of our lips. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips, they acknowledge his name. Let's go to the Lord together and, and pray as we ask him to prepare our hearts to receive again the most incredible gift that he would offer us. The shed blood and the pierced body of his son, Jesus Christ, for us sinners. Father God, we come before you this morning. We ask that we would worship you by remembering that you are a God who does not change. And because you do not change, we are not consumed. And we praise you, Lord God, that we are not consumed, but through your son, Jesus Christ, we have been made a royal priesthood. We have been given the opportunity to sing your praises, to give back a portion of what you have given to us so freely. God, we pray that you would prepare our hearts to commemorate, to remember, and to reflect upon what you have done for us in your son Jesus. Might you work on our hearts. Might you allow us to bless you with our lives and with the giving of our resources. In the name of your son Jesus, we pray.